Well, good evening, Trinity Community Church, or maybe good morning or, or good afternoon. Uh, normally, I would be coming to you with the, the word of the Lord at, at around 10.15 on a Sunday morning, but right now it's actually uh, just before 8 p.m. On, on Saturday. As, as you all know, coronavirus has made its way to Lake County and this has started to spread, and it's very likely that it's going to spread quite a bit more. Um, and so uh, our lifestyles are going to change for a time. And, you know, as I, as I read information coming in from the CDC or WHO or uh, the Lake County Health Department, it seems unclear how, how long it is that, that we will be apart. It, it could be two weeks. Um, it, it could also be much, much longer. It, it all just depends on um, how, how well our... Uh, local government and uh, medical professionals are able to sort of control the the rate of the spread. Um, and so normally it would be our duty as Christians to, to be meeting together. Um, and if, if this were a situation where the government was just sort of indefinitely banning us from meeting, we would meet. But under these circumstances, it's, it's reasonable for us to, to cooperate with the local authorities. Uh, it's even our, our duty to each other so that, so that each of us can sort of take our own personal responsibility in limiting the spread of, of the coronavirus, of COVID-19. And so the way that this is going to look, you know, for, for now the plan is that we will pre-record sermons and service content. So tonight's going to be really simple. You know, it's going to be a, a sermon, uh, some music, and maybe a benediction at the end. In future weeks, maybe we'll, we'll change it up a little bit and it'll... it'll Often, probably just depend on on how the the situation is is advancing. Uh, be checking our website and our and our Facebook for more updates. And, and then I, I also encourage you to check the YouTube channel just throughout the week, maybe maybe every day, every other day, because the the hope is that we'll, we'll be posting other content. We want to find ways that that we can still feel connected as a church body. If you have ideas of of Ways that we can do that, I encourage you to send that in, elders at trinitylink.com or, or um, my email, mike at trinitylink.com. Send that in, any ideas that you have, and you know, at the end of the day, we, we just want to remain together as a congregation. This is going to be probably tough. It's probably going to be tough, and so we, we need to, to stick together. So I, what I encourage you to do, in addition, you know, these... These recorded sermons, the, the service elements that we're going to be pre-recording, they're going to show up at around 10 a.m. on Sundays. And so obviously you can, you can listen to those any, at any time. But I encourage you to, to, to make an effort to, to, to watch or to listen at 10 a.m. Either by yourself or, or gather your family together. Or even community groups, you know, gather community groups together and, and, and watch the content, um, sing together, uh, and, and I think the reason why is, is just to, to, to remind ourselves that we might be apart, we might not all be gathered together, but we are still a church family. And so I, I encourage you to find ways to reinforce that for yourself over the coming weeks as we postpone gathering together. So more on that, I'm sure, over the coming days, but for right now, let's jump into the scriptures. So we continue in the book of Matthew. 
John did an awesome job last week covering the story of Peter through the, through the uh, those last chapters of of Matthew. And so there are some parts in today's passage that I probably won't be addressing nearly as much. So we're talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Most likely, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about the exchange with the disciples that Jesus has there. So the, you know, the disciples falling asleep and Jesus kind of uh, calling out Peter and saying, could, could you not stay awake with, with me one hour? I'm probably not going to cover a whole lot of that just because John did and, and he did a great job. And so today I'm more just going to be focusing on Jesus, his, his prayer there in the garden, some, there's some pretty deep theological themes that, that emerge out of that moment. So it's a great opportunity to talk about some of those things, but then also lots of practical stuff about prayer. And so I'll be covering, covering the prayer in the garden and then the arrest of Christ. This is going to be best if you have a, a Bible open with you. This is in, in chapter 26, it's verse 36 all the way to, to verse 56. In future weeks, we're going to see what we can do about slides and, and ho- hopefully have that element as, as part of the sermon. But for right now, have a Bible open with you if you can. So we'll jump in now. One of the things that we don't often consider is how many opportunities Jesus might have had to walk away from his mission. He could have done it in a number of different ways. So Jesus had a particular mission, and there's a couple of different ways that he could have failed to, to stay the course. One of the ways was he could have turned it into a violent rebellion, right? We've talked often about how that was sort of folks' expectation of what Messiah would be. So he, he could have turned his, his, his rebellion into something you know, hugely violent, but instead he, he, he went out and he told people to turn the other cheek, to love and forgive their enemies, these amazing things. He also could have made his movement into uh, something that didn't really ruffle a lot of feathers. So I think about this one philosopher, he was a Stoic philosopher named Epictetus. There were a number of different Stoic philosophers. One of them was a king, Marcus Aurelius, but what's interesting is Epictetus was a slave. And so he, he was building a philosophy about basically how to live life best even if you're a slave. And so what he came up with was essentially a kind of stoicism where you, your responsibility is just to deal with your own emotions, to, to take care of yourself, to try to position yourself emotionally where, where no matter what comes at you, you're, you're going to be kind of unscathed inwardly. And, and then otherwise you, you just go with the flow. You just try to kind of live peacefully. And so Jesus could have made a movement like that. He could have taken these, these oppressed Jewish peoples and, and said, hey, just love, love each other, obey God, and, uh, and, and be peaceful citizens. And Jesus would have, would have gone down in history as, you know, just a, a benign philosopher, uh, just like Epictetus. But instead, Jesus ruffled feathers. Jesus rode in the, the, the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, which we've, we've talked a number of times about how that was a, that was a blank, blatant... Uh, claim to be the Messiah. Uh, he, was, he, he called down judgment on the temple of God. He, he ruffled feathers. So he was not interested in, in just placating the, uh, the, uh, the oppressive powers of the time. There's another thing that he could have done. He could have just walked away. He, he could have left 
the movement. He could have gone and taken a wife, had a family, right? Lived peacefully. He could have done that. He had the opportunity very early on to, to abandon his mission when he, when he was tempted in the wilderness, um, being tested to, to see, is, is this really the man who can live up to the name Messiah, the name Christ? He's in the wilderness and he's being tested, and, and the first thing he's, te he's tested on is just daily bread. What, will you turn these stones? Will you use your power, your divine power, as, as the God-man? Will you use that power to just provide for yourself in your hunger here in the wilderness? And he passed that test and it was followed quickly up by success, by being offered all the kingdoms of the world. And, and so power and, and security and prestige and, and all that. And again, Jesus says no. So that's, that's you know, he, he, he could have folded, but instead Jesus stays resolute. And when you read through the New Testament, what you find is that, and you're sort of looking for this, if you're, st if you're sort of looking for this and you're reading through the New Testament, you end up finding it in, in quite a few different places. You realize that, that this was part of what made Jesus so awe-inspiring. So in the Gospel of John, there's a quick little, quick little comment he makes. It's actually it's when he's narrating the very same night that we're in um, this evening, the that final night of, of the Lord's Supper and and the prayers in the garden. When John is is entering into that part of of his gospel, he opens it by saying that that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the end. So again, it's this, it's, it's subtle, but it's this idea of Jesus' endurance. It comes up in a really cool way in the Gospel of Luke. It's when Jesus has sort of begun to transition out of his ministry in Galilee, and he's about to start making his way to Jerusalem. And, and Luke says that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, set his face. And here's what's interesting about that. That is, that's a quote. He's, he's making an allusion to a passage in the, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 50. It's actually probably one of the, one of the, the passages that's, that's coming from the voice of the servant of Yahweh. If, if you were listening through our Advent series, you'll remember the, the servant of Yahweh is this figure in, in the, the book of Isaiah who sort of stands in for God's people. The servant of Yahweh suffers, and he suffers for God's people and, and wins their forgiveness. So at one point, the servant says this, this is Isaiah 50, Five through seven, the Lord God has opened my ears, and I was not rebellious. As I'm reading this, just be looking out for that that theme of uh, resolve, you know, endurance. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I didn't. I, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. So it's this moment where the servant is facing down his sufferings. And despite everything that's facing him, he musters his resolve. He sets his face and, and goes forward. He doesn't let anything prevent him from, from his mission. So he stays, he stays faithful. And so that's what Luke is, is quoting there when he describes Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem. It's, it's the servant of Yahweh realizing the suffering he's about to face and still... He's after it, right? He's, he's resolved. Again, it shows up in the letter to the Hebrews, this quality that Jesus had, this, the, the endurance of Christ. He says, let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus was resolved to the end. He endured. He did it because it would be through his endurance that he would make his, his glory known. So Jesus keeps his resolve. He, he loved his own, and he loved them to the end. And, and in today's passage, this passage of Jesus in the garden, it's a hugely meaningful passage. I think it's probably very personal for many of us and, and for many different reasons. And tonight, I think what we're going to find as we sort of walk through the passage, I think we're going to find that, that this theme of the endurance of Jesus, the resolve of Jesus, that theme's really going to come out strong. And so that's what we're going to be sort of focusing on tonight. We're, we're given this intimate window into, into Jesus sort of mustering himself for that final push. Uh, despite all the fear, all the anxiety, all the sickening terror, he musters his resolve one last time so that having loved his own who were in the world, he can love them, love them to the end. So the main point today, Jesus kept his resolve and loved us to the end. And he did it in two ways that we're going to talk about. So he keeps his resolve through prayer, and he keeps his resolve through obedience. So prayer and obedience, we're going to do prayer first. So let, let, me, let me read. So Matthew writes, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. They said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So stay, stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the, to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this can't pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again, he, he came and found the disciples sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again. That time he doesn't try to, to wake them up. So leaving them again, he, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So what we're seeing in this passage, right up front, is, is Jesus at prayer. Jesus at prayer. So this is something that Jesus that was just a part of his his routine, part of Jesus' life. The, the book of Luke especially emphasizes this, but this shows up in every account of the life of, of Jesus. He was prayerful. He was reliant on, on God's Spirit. But, but, you know, there's, there's passage after passage, against, especially in Luke, of, of Jesus retreating to pray and then going out and, and engaging. So the sort of withdrawal, pray and then re-engage this constant pattern that, that Jesus had. And so here we are we're at this moment where Jesus is, is facing his passion, right, his suffering. And what's he going to do? He, he's going to pray. 
He's going to pray. Another thing that stands out is what, what John talked about as well, that this is Jesus in need. Which sounds kind of weird for us to say, because as Christians, we, we believe, and rightly so, that, that, that the reason Jesus is, is so extraordinary is because he was God incarnate, right? But here, here we have Jesus, like every other human, desiring company. He, he's, in, he's in a crisis. And so he just wants the disciples to be with him, to pray with him, and to just stay awake. Just stay awake. And of course, there's more reasons uh, than just that he needs the company. It's that the disciples themselves are about to face a crisis. And so Jesus is, is telling them what they need to do to make it. They need to watch and pray. Uh, but they, they fall asleep. And so what we have is this moment where, uh, you know, if it was, if, it was, if we were watching a, a play, you know, we'd have the disciples sort of awake and a light on them and a light on Jesus. But as they fall asleep, the spot on the disciples would fade out and we would just see Jesus. I mean, when the disciples fall asleep, Jesus is left alone. He is left completely alone. And that, that really has to, to sink in as, as, as far as like sort of setting this scene is concerned. Like Jesus is about to go basically by himself. I mean, no one else can suffer with him what he's about to suffer. He has to carry it. But before he is even in trial, before he's even suffering physically, there's this moment where he's kind of singled out, right? He's singled out and, and, and left functionally alone. And so he begins to pray. He prays for, for a couple things. He, he says this, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So it's the first request he makes. Let this cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about? What, what metaphor is he deploying right there? Well, it's the, it's the cup of the Lord's Supper, right? It's the, the blood of the covenant. The, the blood of the covenant is his own blood. He is about to spill the blood of the covenant. The cup that is being handed to him will be filled with his blood. I mean, that's the, that's the metaphor that he's using. But there's even one, there's even a metaphor sort of prior to that one. All through, through the prophets, the prophets of, of Israel would often deploy this, this metaphor of the cup of God's wrath. It was this idea that, that, that God's people had sort of betrayed him, and so he, it's like he's offering them this cup, and it's full to the brim of, of God's wrath. And that was sort of the, the image is that these disasters are coming on Israel because of the wrath of God, and they just have to keep on drinking the cup down to the dregs until it's completely drained. And so that cup of God's wrath is about to be poured out on Jesus. He is, he is going to be the one that is going to drink the cup for his people so that they do not have to drink it. So that's the first request he makes. And, and then he, he follows it up with, with the request, but, but not as I will, but as you will. Let, let your will be done. So he, he's, he's put this request out there. If it's possible, if there's any other way, if, if there's some way that I can avoid the suffering, please, let's do that. So then he goes, he checks the disciples. Again, they're, they're still asleep, right? They're, they're not doing any better. And so I wonder if in that moment, that somehow communicated something to Jesus. That what he was asking was to be spared the cup of God's wrath. Then he goes and he finds the disciples asleep. 
they sort of get up, but he knows they're going to fall back asleep. And, and maybe that was this signal that, no, 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 your, your abandonment has already begun. The abandonment of Jesus has already begun. And so I, I wonder if that was, that was a meaningful thing, if, there, if there's meaning that Jesus drew out that moment. Because here's why I say that. The second prayer, when Jesus prays again, it has changed. So the, the prayer changes the second time that, that Jesus falls on his face before the Lord. Um, he says this, Father, if this can't pass from me, your will be done. Right? So, so he sort of abbreviated the prayer, and, and this time he's not, he's not saying, is it possible? Right? If, if it is possible, please let this take place. Instead, the, the prayer is starting to change a little bit. Instead, he's, he's praying in terms of almost like, given that this is not possible, let your will be done in me. Not my will, but, but your will be done. As Christians, we believe that God is a being that exists in three persons. So this is some of the theological stuff I wanted to talk about um, with, with Jesus here saying, not my will, but your will be done. So what's going on there? Especially if we believe that Jesus is God, which we emphatically do. So what's going on there? As Christians, we believe that God is a being that exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and we believe that each of those persons, the, the, the historic Christian position is that each of those persons has a will, right? Each of those persons wills things, right? There, there, are, there are purposes that they're kind of after. So we should think of the Father as having a will, the Son, we should think of him as having a will, the Spirit, we should think of him as having a will. That, that's the, the best way to, to conceive of the Trinity is to... to to see each individual member as sort of willing things. And so that's how Jesus can be both one with God and still there in the garden make a distinction between his will and the Father's will, his Father's will. But here's the thing, there's still one in what they will. There's still one in the thing that they're after. That's the important detail. They are one in what they will. So before the foundation of the world, before the, before time itself, it was the will of God that the Son would die for God's people, right? So, the, the, and this was an agreed upon thing between the Father and the Son to rescue the world by the death of Jesus. It was perfect agreement, so it wasn't like Jesus is sort of um, manipulated or forced or, or abused somehow into agreeing with this. It's that and the, the perfect simplicity of, of God, the Father, and the Son are in agreement. There's a pastor that calls it the frictionless wills of the Father and the Son. That Yes, they have separate wills, but they are frictionless. They are just per, in perfect agreement. They are united around this purpose, which is that the Son will suffer for God's people in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. And so that's, that's a reality that we as, we as Christians would say that, that that reality of the perfect sort of united wills of, of God, that reality exists in God's essence, right? In God's essence, as he is. This, this is a, a reality. There's the perfect frictionless agreement between the Father and the Son, and of course the Spirit as well. Now, when Jesus becomes a person, right, he, what, what he's doing is he's fully inhabiting um, human life, human life as it was meant to be lived. And so 
the way that that frictionless agreement shows up concretely in our world is that Jesus submits to the will of the Father. He, he submits to the will of the Father, again, frictionlessly. And here in the garden, what we're watching is Jesus in real time, concretely, through wrestling, through laboring in prayer, he is aligning himself with the will of God, right? So when, when God as he is gets expressed in history, this is what it looks like. It looks like Jesus in the garden. Those, those frictionless wills coming together. And, and the way that it looks is, is Jesus saying, your will be done. Jesus aligning his will with God. Jesus is doing what it is his nature to do, which is align his wills, his will with the Father's. So now in the face of evil and suffering, he's doing it in agony. He has to do it in agony. And yet, without disagreement, he does it. Without friction, he does it. Without dissent, he does it. Not my will, but your will be done. And it takes more than one prayer. So again, he, he goes and checks on the disciples. They're still asleep. He doesn't even bother with them this time. Then he goes back and he prays the same thing. It literally says he prays the same thing. It took more than one prayer. That This, this laboring of Jesus in prayer, it wasn't just one thing, but he goes back and he continues to do it. He is determined that to, to sort of muster up this resolve that his will will be the Father's will. So he's, he wrestles not against God, rather he wrestles so that he can abide in the will of the Father. So to, to sum that up, Jesus is facing this incredible suffering. Uh, what we're seeing is Jesus in his final moments of freedom. When most folks are in this sort of a state, their you know, time sort of slows down for them, their senses become really sharpened. Jesus is on his face in prayer. He's probably feeling the dirt on his hands, and, and the, the meaning of that is, is really pointed. That, like just a sense that he's alive. Right now he's alive, but he's about to not be. So Jesus himself alive and, and Jesus dead, those two points are less than 24 hours away, and, and that's heavy on his mind. And so what does he do? He throws himself before God in prayer, as he has done a thousand times before. And even before that, he, he does it to, to align himself with with the will of God. So, I'd like to bring out some application here, but I'm going to come at it uh, kind of through the back door. So, what we also believe about Jesus, we believe that Jesus is, is the incarnation of God, but we believe that Jesus isn't, isn't just sort of a fraction human and the rest God or whatever, we don't believe that's sort of a 50-50 split, or that part of him is human and part of him is God. The ancient confession of the church is that Jesus is fully human and fully God. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus, as a consequence of being God, Jesus is the perfect human, right? Jesus embodies what a human was meant to be, okay? So that's that's something that the, that the church has always confessed over the years. And it's interesting when, you know, this turns into kind of funny things when we start to to try to portray Jesus in film, right? 
So, well, you know, depending on who the filmmaker is, they might make different decisions on how to portray Jesus. And obviously they have their work cut out for him because they're, they're having to somehow parse what it even means that, that there's this guy who was fully God and fully human. And so, you know, as, as I watch different movies, you know, you can kind of figure out different directors' perspectives. You know, so in some movies you see kind of a detached Jesus, right? Either he just looks you know, I mean, kind of drugged. <laughs> if you've ever seen Jesus Christ Superstar, the, the guy who plays Jesus is so detached that he looks like he is on quaaludes. But, you know, or you'll have the, the, the Jesus that no matter what's going on, he just always has a knowing smile. You know, just like he's kind of above it. He's just always kind of above it. A very detached Jesus. And when you see this detached Jesus, you know that what the director's trying to get across is... Uh, his divinity, right? Like, he's not quite human. You know, he's divine. So they're kind of trying to emphasize that that quality, the, the fully divineness of Jesus. And they, they do that by making him kind of detached. Or you can have, the, these sorts of films are way fewer, um, but this would be like Jesus of Montreal or The Last Temptation of Christ. I don't mention those movies uh, necessarily as a recommendation. There's much content that... that um, yeah, it's just not good content. And so I'm not mentioning those movies as, as a recommendation necessarily. But in both of them, they portray a human Jesus, right? So the assumption in both of the stories is that he's not God. And in both cases, the way that the director sort of communicates his humanity is he they portray a compromised Christ, right? So he, he's been compromised. So he's... Uh, you know, fearful or sort of, yeah, it's morally compromised. And, and so you watch and you can tell, okay, the director um, thinks that Jesus was just a human. So you kind of have detached Jesus, and that's them making him divine, or you have compromised Jesus, and that's him, human. And so depictions of Jesus in film, they get really interesting in this way. Uh, and because it just kind of tends to, to reveal what people think about him and what people think about God. So we, we think of God as, what this shows me is that we think of God as detached. And so if Jesus is God, well, he's going to be detached, right? He's going to have that knowing smile. He's just always going to be kind of above it, right? So we, we must think that to be divine is to be kind of detached when that's actually the last thing that God is. God is not detached. He is involved. God is involved. He is near. He hears. He rages. He reveals himself as a God who rages. He reveals himself as a God full of compassion, as tender as a mother, as passionate as a lover, as protective as a father, as close as a friend, as united with us as a king is with his people. God is involved. And so the sign of Jesus' divinity is his involvement, that he's in it. And I'm, I'm just, in just the same way, we think of humans as compromised. Right? We think that what it is to be human is to be compromised morally. We are compromised. Every single human is compromised. Every single one of us. But that's not because we're human. It's be, it's because, I keep on standing up and saying now. It's not because we're human that we're compromised. It's because we're sinners that we're compromised. There was a time when humans were not compromised, but we weren't any less human. We were actually more human. Sin makes us less human. The way of Jesus, the way of the Lord, makes us, taps us back into true humanity. That to be human is to be dependent on God, certainly. 
that's very core to what it is to be human. But that doesn't mean that we were compromised. There, there, we've always had a need for God, but not always because we were compromised. Instead, we were made to depend on God, to align our will with his will. In fact, we were made like, to really align our, our will or, you know, with his rule, because we were made to rule on God's behalf. And so what we're seeing in this moment is Jesus in his full divinity and Jesus in his full humanity. That Jesus is, is, you know, when we see this moment of him praying in the garden, we often think Jesus in his human nature is scared, certainly. And so what he needs to do now is sort of overcome his human nature, overcome the moral compromise of being a human. He needs to overcome that with his divine nature. I've actually heard preachers say stuff like that. But that's not what we're actually seeing. We are seeing Jesus do exactly what a human ought to do. We are seeing Jesus be perfectly human. I hope this is meaningful. Maybe I'm not communicating this totally well, but what we're seeing is is Jesus fully divine and, and fully human. We are seeing humanness as it was meant to be. So Jesus is up an incredible trial. And so, yes, he's afraid, he's grieved, he's pressed down, he's working himself into a blood state with anxiety as he stares down the barrel of just this incredible suffering. And the way he faces it is by throwing his face to the ground and praying. What what Jesus is after isn't that his divine nature sort of overcome his humanness. Rather, because he's divine and human, what we're seeing in the garden is the true way of humanness, the way of true humanness, I mean. Jesus is more human, in other words, than we are. As a result of being God in the flesh, he embodies what it is to be human more than we do. He is showing us how to live. This this man, hunched over in desperate prayer, is the image of a human facing crisis the right way. This, what, what we're seeing here in the garden, this is how humans live in an inhuman world. This is how humans live when everything is falling apart. Let's get even more practical. Jesus does three things here. First, he prays for deliverance. He prays for deliverance. So sometimes when, maybe you can relate to this, maybe you can't, um, but sometimes we have this impulse that like praying for help is somehow less spiritual. Not at all. That is not at all the case. It is is right along the way of Jesus to, to pray for deliverance. We see it all across the Psalms. Jesus is embodying that now in the garden. Here is Jesus asking God to spare him. He isn't too divine, quote unquote, to pray for deliverance. He isn't too divine for that. Rather, because he is divine and because he is human, he does what a human ought to do. Here is Jesus turning to God for help. So that's number one, he prays for deliverance. Number two, he prays for resolve. Your will be done. What's going on there? He's, he's not just sort of passively saying, okay, go and do what you want to do. He's saying, let me participate in what you want to do. Let my will be your will, right? So Jesus is praying for a resolve. In prayer, he's aligning himself with the will of God, right? Um, completely without sin. You know, this isn't Jesus, like, repenting, okay? I want to clarify that. This isn't Jesus repenting. We need to repent. He doesn't. But, but... 
still his example is here that in prayer he prays for deliverance but also he prays for resolve that whatever it is that god's will is he prays that that he would be obedient to that so he's he's being an example to us in this prayer so he prays for deliverance he prays for resolve and then thirdly he keeps on praying he keeps on praying there's one more detail that we need to, to touch before moving on. This is going to be the longest point of the sermon, and the, the second one will, will move pretty, at a pretty rapid clip. One more detail that we need to mention before moving on, and that's to point out that Jesus is told no. Jesus prays for deliverance, and he's told no. The most righteous, morally beautiful man who ever lived prays to, to get what he deserves, okay? So having the cup pass from him is what he deserves. And he's told no. His prayer for salvation is answered with a no so that our prayer for salvation might be answered with a yes. If Jesus does not die, we have no hope. If Jesus is spared, then we won't be. If Jesus does not suffer, then we have to. If Jesus is saved, then we can't be. It is because Jesus sets his face here in the garden that we can now set our face on him. He is told no so that we can be told yes. He's told no so that we can be told yes. He's told no and Jesus submits to it. And what we're going to see now is that the, 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 is the moment where Jesus is betrayed, and, and suddenly, like he, so he's gone through this, this trial of prayer. Here's his betrayer coming to him. Here's Judas, and suddenly, this isn't shaking, you know, trembling Jesus anymore. He has found his resolve, right? And so in this next section, you know, there, the anxiety is invisible if it's there at all. I mean, he has set his face once again to the cross, he, he, has, he is, as he was all along, his will and the Father's will are frictionlessly in agreement. His face is set, now it's time to act. He's going to let nothing prevent him. And so that's the next thing that Jesus keeps his resolve, not just through prayer, but through obedience. He keeps his resolve not just through prayer, but through obedience. Let's read the next bit. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd, swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So they've been sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back to its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I can't appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled? It must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. 
Okay, so Jesus wakes up the disciples. Uh, like John mentioned last week, they've, they've slept when they should have been praying. There's a number of different reasons why that could be. John brought out the, the very real possibility that they, they kind of felt like they had this thing under control. You know, they, Peter, Peter basically says, like, if anyone takes you, it's going to be over my dead body. Right? He says that to Jesus when, when Jesus tells Peter he's going to deny him. Peter basically says, over my dead body, right? So it could be that he and, and James and John, they're, they're sleeping because they kind of feel like, we got this. You know, the guards show up, you know, uh, we learn that one of them has a sword, so they're packing heat. So they're like, all right, we're, we're fine, we got this. Um, another side to it is that they were probably grieved. They were, they were probably grieving in a way, right? So the, the, one of the gospel writers, Luke, I think, records that they were exhausted with sorrow. They were exhausted with sorrow. And so they might have felt that confidence. And, and on the other hand, they, maybe they, they were feeling it in kind of a tragic way, where it's like, okay, these guys are going to come take Jesus and we're all going to die with him, right? And so they're, they're grieving Jesus before he's even gone, they're, and they're grieving themselves, maybe, um, because they think that, you know, and so in that case, what their confidence is, is that they're going to make it to the end, you know, that they're going to die with Jesus. And so they're sitting there, they're grieving with sorrow, and they, they basically cry themselves to sleep. You know, they, they're just exhausted with, with sorrow. They're going to go down with the ship. So whatever the case, Jesus wakes them up, um, he says, get your rest later, it's time. And he wakes them up just as Judas walks onto the scene. So Judas would have inside knowledge of where Jesus was likely to go. This was probably, you know, at least the third time that they had this meal together, given the length of, of Jesus' ministry. And so it, it was probably just common practice. They're like, hey, after, after the, a feast day, we go to this little plot of land, the, the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is um, outside the walls of Jerusalem, but pretty close. Our own Steve Bryan was recently there. Um, and you can actually see the Temple Mount, he, he was saying, from, from the garden. And it's actually a really small plot of land. So my point in bringing this up is that it's outside the city. There's probably very little light. So aside from whatever torches the disciples might have brought to guide their way or any lamps, there's, there's no light. And so it would have probably been, been very difficult for the, the guards, who haven't really seen Jesus all that much, it would have been difficult for them to um, identify him, right? So, so Judas comes up with this way that he's going to identify Jesus. And it's a very common greeting between friends in the ancient world. He's, he's going to kiss Jesus. So he goes up to Jesus, greetings, Rabbi. And, and Jesus says, do what you came here to do. In other words, get on with it. And so the sign is given, the guards move in to take Jesus. And, and the disciples, they're going to respond the way that you think a disciple ought to respond, right? They, 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 they at least have convinced themselves that they're resolved to die with Jesus. And so one of them, you know, again, is packing heat. He has a sword, so he pulls it out, um, you know, tries to slash the servant of the high priest, and the blow ends up glancing off the side of his face, cutting his ear off. Um, but still, hey, you know, like that, that's first blood. It's a good start, right? Maybe we're, maybe we're going to get out of this alive. And so maybe the disciples are thinking like, hey, we're going to defend Jesus. Maybe, we'll, maybe we'll, we'll prevent his crucifixion this way that he said he's going to die. And now Jesus sort of has a choice here. Here's his disciples. They're fighting now, okay? They're defending him. Jesus has, has kind of a choice here. He could let the disciples 
find him. He could get in there himself. He's this young, strapping carpenter. Uh, he could abandon the mission and, and fight his way out, out of that place. It's dark. He could probably run into the woods and be just, be just fine. But instead, Jesus steps in not to fight the guards, but to prevent Peter, where in one of the other Gospels we're told the, the swordsman is Peter. He steps in, he stops Peter. He says, if you, die by, if you live by this, you die by this. But then he goes further. He reminds Peter that Jesus doesn't have to rely on 12 disciples to defend him. If he wanted to, he could get 12 legions of angels to come to his side and wage war for him. If he wanted, he could just walk away. If he wanted, he could be saved. That's not what he wants. It's not his will. His will is the Father's will. He has set his face. He has resolved. The scriptures will be fulfilled. The servant of Yahweh will suffer. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep scattered. The lamb will be offered. The son of man will be lifted up and the nations will shut their mouths at him. And then Jesus turns to the crowd. He says, says, have you come to me as though I'm a robber? Right? He says, I'm not some violent rebel martyr. He's not going to go down in a blaze of glory. He's going to go silently as a sheep to the slaughter. He will turn his cheek to those who pull the beard. He will bend his back to the lash and the rod. In other words, he says, I'll go quietly. And the reason why is because nothing is going to prevent him. He is resolved. His arrest is going according to plan. And so he hands himself over to be taken. And so Jesus, you know, keeps his resolve and, and loves us to the end. He keeps his resolve through prayer and through obedience. So in the coming weeks, we as a congregation and we as individuals are facing a lot of uncertainty. And, and possibly some suffering. We just don't know. It could be that in two weeks we're back in the sanctuary. And then it, it might not be, and we just don't know. We, you know, there are a number of measures being taken, and, and we should pray for wisdom for our leaders. You know, my encouragement to us as a church, as we enter into who knows what, my encouragement to us as a church is to follow Jesus, seek his kingdom right here and right now when it really matters. And we're going to do that in two ways. We're going to pray and we're going to obey. We will pray. We will pray for deliverance. We will pray that this virus would go away. We will pray for peace. We will also pray for God to help us to, to submit to his will. We're going to pray that he would align our will with his will. So we pray for deliverance, we pray for resolve, and we keep on praying. And I, what I encourage you to do, I encourage you to set aside time every day when you're going to do this. Okay, we, we, we need to contend in prayer right now. Set a reminder on your phone. It, it might even make sense during this season to fast. So we're going we're gonna to set our face toward prayer. And secondly, we're going to set our face toward obedience. Whatever it is that God ends up Asking of us, may we rise to the challenge by his grace and by the strength that he gives us through his presence in prayer and the scriptures and in wrestling with him. Um, and so I encourage you to, to be wise, prepare, um, be cautious, but also to be generous. 
to be to be alert to those who are going to have needs over the next coming weeks, and um, and seek to obey the Lord in that moment. So in the coming weeks, it's going to be important that we stay together as well. So guys, call each other, Skype each other, pray together, do whatever you can. Uh, let me pray right now. Oh Lord, we thank you for your example in the garden. We thank you that you contended in prayer, not just for yourself, but for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your will was the Father's will in the end. That you kept your resolve, that you were faithful to the very end to go to the cross for our sake, to purchase our forgiveness. You were told no so that we could be told yes. So, Lord, be with us. You told us that you'd be with us to the end of the age. Be with us now. We don't know what we're going into. It could be, um, you know, mild relatively, uh, and it could be bad. God, we, we plead with you for China and South Korea and Italy and the U.K., Please, Lord, have mercy. We pray that you would have mercy on us. Um, keep us faithful in prayer and faithful in obedience. Amen. Love you guys.